Good morning. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have children, fifth grade or younger, you can uh, let them go to Gospel Project right now if you like. You can also keep them in here. There will be some adults back on the patio that will help them find their classroom. Uh, I don't get to do this very often, so just settle back and relax. We should be done in about an hour and a half. Uh, No, just kidding. Uh, We are continuing through the book of Mark in our year in Mark, and today we'll be looking at Mark 10, 17 through 31. Before we read this text, though, I'm a visual person, so I'm going to show you three images that are all not quite what they seem to be at first. So here's the first one. So it seems to be two guys with a, a little tiny woman sitting on the, on, standing on the shoulder of one guy. Uh, but it just so happens that the guy's backpack strap perfectly aligns with her pants, the woman behind him. So it doesn't, it's not really what it seems to be at all. Look at this next one. This guy's not on fire. Um, he is standing close to a fire, but he's not on fire. Our first impression of that is alarming, but it's not really. And then this last one. What appears to be some aerial photograph of, a, of an island is really a tiny piece of moss floating on a pond. So these, of course, are all optical illusions. Um, their first impression is misleading. Well, I think that this portion of Mark 10 is similar in a way, that we might at first glance think that it's only about just one thing. Uh, that it might be just about the dangers of wealth. And it is, but I, I think as we look closer, we'll see that, that that idea supports the main idea of the passage, which is something else. It might be helpful also as we read this passage to, to know that as we encounter, as we read this passage, we'll encounter three concepts, which at first might seem unrelated to one another or only partially related to each other, which are, uh, in reality, synonymous. These are the, the ideas of inheriting the kingdom of God, following Jesus, and um, uh, entering, inheriting eternal life, following Jesus, and entering the kingdom. Those are all completely tied together. You can't have one without the other. Someone who's following Jesus has entered the kingdom and has entered, in, inherited eternal life. They're all related, connected. So as we see this, we'll see that they sort of are uh, uh, um, just different aspects of discipleship in Christ uh, and that they're mostly interchangeable. As I said earlier, this passage may not be about exactly what you think it is. Well, if that's true, then what is this about? Well, as we look closely today, I think we'll find that it's about this. Following Jesus must cost you everything, but the reward is far greater than the cost. So let's read Mark 17 through, 11, uh, 17 through 31 together now. This is God's word. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. 
Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus said to them, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This passage is really has two main parts. The first is this story of the encounter Jesus had with a rich man, which we find in verses 17 through 21, and then an account of the teaching he gave to the disciples based on this encounter in verses 22 through 31. In the interaction between Jesus and this rich man, we'll see that this man expresses two very common misconceptions that are true even today about what it takes to enter the kingdom, to enter the kingdom to inherit eternal life. Let's read 17 through 20 again and listen for these two misconceptions. As he was setting out his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept since my youth. Well, the first thing that Jesus makes clear to this man is that he has a misconception about what goodness is. Man, he, he addresses Jesus as good teacher. We know this man was rich, and we know from the other Gospels that he was young and had some kind of authority, a ruler, probably one of the leaders in the local synagogue. By every common measure of the day, this guy would have been considered the poster boy for what good is. And we know from his statement about keeping all the law in verse 20 
that he definitely considered himself good. He approached Jesus with respect, but only the respect due a noted rabbi. He didn't address him as Lord. He didn't address him as the Messiah. He certainly didn't at this point think of him as God. When he approaches Jesus and calls him a good teacher, he speaks as one good man to another, looking for advice. His concept of goodness was not good because his idea of goodness is based completely on human achievement. So in verse 18, Jesus redefines goodness for him. He says, when Jesus says, why do you call me good? There is no one except God. He's not saying that he, that he wasn't good. He knows he's God. He knows he's completely good. Now, he's responding to this man's conception of goodness, saying, in effect, I don't accept your definition of what good is. This man thought being good, doing good deeds, was a means of achieving eternal life. He basically asked, what must I do? What additional good thing can I add to my resume to really make sure I have eternal life? Real goodness comes as a gift from God, not for, through achievement. Jesus knew that this man could never inherit eternal life by being good because he could never be good enough. Only God is good. Well, this is also true of you and me. We cannot... Be good enough. If you're trying to earn some place in eternity by being good, you're not going to get there. One of the problems we have is that we naturally think of ourselves as basically good, which according to Jesus is incorrect. Our conception of our own goodness has to be abandoned if we're going to follow Jesus. It's a part of the cost of discipleship. We must come, as Shing shared with us last week, helpless like a child, entrusting our lives completely to him. Well, the second misconception we see in this little passage part is that this man, uh, this man thought he could and had kept all the commandments. Jesus said to him, you know the commandments. Jesus is referring to the Ten Commandments, which we find in Exodus 20. And Jesus quotes from the last five of the ten, which all focus this man's attention on his relationships with other people as the measure of his devo devotion and reverence for God. Because if you're not doing the last five, it's obvious you're not doing the first five. Notice that Jesus did not say to this man, forget the Old Testament law and the commandments, just invite me into your life and you're in. No, Jesus does not say that. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The rich man said to Jesus, I have kept all of these since my youth. It's a pretty big statement. He believed that he had kept the commandments well enough to be considered righteous. The rabbis of his day taught him that he had 
the ability within himself to keep the law. Because they taught him only how to keep the outward appearance, the letter of the law. If you take each of these commandments at its most literal meaning, maybe he had kept them all. But we know from Jesus' teaching that the depth and intent of the law is far beyond outward observance alone. In fact, one of the main points of the law is to show us that without wholly trusting in God, it is impossible to keep the commandments fully. So this man's understanding of the nature and the purpose of the law is fatally flawed. Matthew Henry, an 18th century pastor, said this, Ignorance of the extent and spiritual nature of the divine law makes people think themselves in a better condition than they really are. That's this guy. He thought he was doing well when in fact he was not. But aren't we kind of like that as well? We tend to think primarily of the surface meaning of things too. Do not kill. Check. I have not murdered anyone this morning. So far. But Jesus tells me in Matthew 5, if I have hatred in my heart towards someone, I'm guilty of murder. You see that there's a vast difference between the surface appearance of obedience and complete wholehearted obedience to God's law. That is a whole different ballgame. Just like our conception of our own goodness, our dependence on our own ability to earn by achieving has to be discarded. Perfect obedience to God's law, which is still God's standard, is only possible if I surrender my whole self and follow Jesus totally. He is my perfection. Only He can fulfill the law. Well, at this point, if I were Jesus, I might be tempted to dismiss this guy without a second thought. He clearly doesn't get it. But praise God, Jesus is not like that. Look at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And Jesus saw him, looked in his eyes. He knew who he was. He knew what he was. He knew what this man loved. And it wasn't God. But Jesus loved him anyway. It's amazing. This man who was completely blinded by his own wealth and his own sense of achievement, he was blinded just how helpless he really was to enter the kingdom. This guy Jesus loved. Mark tells us that this incident happened while Jesus was on a journey to Jerusalem to the cross, to die for sinners like that guy and like you and me. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God showed us his love, showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friend, you cannot earn God's grace. Jesus died and rose again so that he could give eternal life as a free gift to those who recognize their neediness and put all their hope in Him. Because Jesus loved this man, He offered him the only way out there was. He said, follow me. 
But before this man could follow Jesus, he had to be willing to surrender all. So in verse 21 and 22, Jesus outlines a sort of cost-benefit analysis for him. Jesus makes the choice crystal clear for him between following wholeheartedly and rejecting him outright. There is no middle path. Look at verses 21 and 22. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Don't you sometimes read a statement like this from Jesus and say to yourself, wow, he is really asking a lot of this guy. I hope he doesn't ask that of me. Is Jesus being unreasonable? Is he trying to be difficult? Is he trying to drive this man away? No, Mark just told us he loves this man. He is trying to rescue him by helping him to clear away that which prevents him from following completely. Let's look at that cost-benefit analysis again. On the one side, we have the man's possessions. Jesus said, all that you have, what does he have? Some money, some metal coins, some plots of ground, which don't really belong to him anyway, houses, clothes, jewels maybe. All those things are temporary. All of them are perishing. And on the other side, treasure in heaven, life in the kingdom with God forever. It's not really much of a choice at all unless you don't believe that following Jesus will lead to treasure in heaven, eternal life in God's presence. This man clearly doesn't believe that is true. As you read this, you might be wondering, should I be selling all I have in order to follow Jesus? Is that what this passage is teaching me? Is it wrong to have wealth? Well, not necessarily. Paul refers to those in the church who are rich in his first letter to Timothy, who are believers. Several followers of Christ mentioned in Scripture were wealthy. The virtue of poverty is not what this text is teaching us. Jesus called this man to surrender his wealth in order to show him that that's where his hope and his trust was. For him, it was the thing that prevented him from following Jesus like a child, helpless and fully surrendered to him alone. Tragically, for this man, it's too much to ask. The point of this passage is complete surrender to Christ of everything, not just your wealth. Following Jesus must cost you everything, but the reward is far greater than the cost. For you, it may not be wealth that keeps you from surrendering to Jesus fully. It might be something else. Think about your life right now. What is it for you that if Jesus called you to give it up completely in order to follow him, you would hesitate? You might even balk at altogether. 
Maybe it's your goals. Maybe it's your dreams, your future career, college students. Could be a home, leisure activities, your hobbies, your retirement, your time. Or maybe it is your money. Maybe it's a relationship, your family, your spouse, even a child. What is it that's more important to you right now than following Jesus with reckless abandon? In his encounter with this man, Jesus is reinforcing what he's already told the disciples in Mark 8, 34 through 36. Let's, let's review that. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? This principle we're learning today is the restatement of that. What Jesus has been saying all along. There's a cost to discipleship. Your ultimate hope cannot be in Jesus and in anything else at the same time. It's impossible. Missionary Jim Elliott, who gave his life for the gospel in Ecuador, famously wrote in his journal, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Verse 22 tells us that this man rejected Jesus' invitation. He was disheartened and he was sad, but he walked away. Why? Mark tells us it was because he had great wealth. Ultimately, he didn't, either didn't believe that following Jesus could actually deliver on giving him eternal life, or he believed that it wasn't worth giving up what he already had. Jesus had said he lacked just one thing. Well, what was that one thing? The one thing was self-surrender. The willingness to leave everything for, to follow Jesus. From our human sin-stained point of view, surrendering everything to follow Jesus always seems really hard and a bit scary, especially when we have stuff that we value. For all of us, it's difficult to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus speaks about this truth, particularly in verses 23 through 26. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Notice in verse 23 that Jesus didn't say, hey guys, look how difficult it was for this one guy to enter the kingdom. No. He says how difficult it will be. It will always be for those who have wealth. Any wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that true? What does having wealth, why does making wealth, having wealth make it more difficult to follow Jesus? Well, to answer that, we should think about what wealth does for us. 
Wealth gives us the means to meet our needs. That's good. God gives us wealth so that we can meet our needs and to feel secure. Wealth gives us the opportunity to be generous, to reflect in a small way God's amazing generosity to us. But wealth also makes it possible for us to indulge not just only our needs, but our wants and desires as well. Wealth can give us a sense of achievement. I earn this. I deserve this. Wealth can obscure the reality of our utter need for God. It can lull us into thinking of ourselves as self-sufficient, independent, autonomous. These are the very opposite of what Jesus has been saying in this whole chapter about what is necessary to enter the kingdom of God. That is complete surrender, childlike dependence, and an understanding, a grasp of our own neediness and our own inability to enter the kingdom. As we said before, wealth is just one of many God-given good things that we tend to make ultimate things, idols that we worship instead of God alone. In this passage, the love of wealth sort of stands in as one of the most obvious barriers to discipleship, representing them all. So why were the disciples amazed at this? Well, in their culture, wealth was seen as God-giving, a God-given blessing, which is true. That concept is t- definitely supported by Scripture. But in their culture, it was also seen as an indication of God's special preference, of His favor on someone in return for their good works. Wealth had come to be seen as an indicator of righteousness. No wonder the disciples were amazed. They thought the richer you were, the more God loved you and the more righteous you were. Instead of reassuring the disciples at this point, he says something that alarms them even more. Look at the second half of verse 24 and then 25 and 26 with me. Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who could be saved? Alarm, alarm. They're freaked out by what he said. Notice that he called them children. He had just explained to them in verses 13 through 16 that childlike neediness and utter dependence were essential to enter the kingdom. And now he calls them children. As if to say, my children, you have followed me. You have entered the kingdom. But he repeats how difficult it is to enter the kingdom, only this time in absolute terms. It's difficult, period, for everyone. And then he gives them this word picture about camels and needles, which raises the level of difficulty to impossibility. The camel would have been the largest animal that any of the disciples had likely seen in their lives. And the eye of a needle is the smallest opening they would have been probably aware of. 
So Jesus very graphically depicts his point with this absurd illustration. How hard is it for someone who's placed their trust in wealth or in anything else to enter the kingdom of God? It's impossible. That is alarming news. I said this passage wasn't primarily about the dangers of wealth, but, the, but rather following Jesus, to following Jesus must cost you everything. But that doesn't mean we should minimize the warning Jesus gives his disciples about the particular dangers of wealth. Jesus specifically said it's practically impossible for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Many of you are saying, Phew, I'm so glad I'm not rich. Not so fast. <laughs> By our American standards of wealth, you may not be rich. Not many of us in this room would be considered rich. But by, in comparison to most of the people alive on this planet right now, we're pretty wealthy. And if you compare yourself to all the human beings who have ever lived, not even close. You're extremely wealthy. Part of our problem is that we've been born into a culture of wealth, of extreme wealth, that distorts our perception of what it means to be wealthy. Elon Musk is wealthy. I'm not wealthy. Kyler Murray's wealthy. I'm not wealthy. And so we, we lull ourselves into thinking that this isn't about me. Whether you're rich or not, whether you consider yourself rich or not, what you do with the wealth you have is one of the most telling measures of where your heart is. As painful as it is to hear that, this is very true. Is God honored by the way you use the financial resources he's given you? Are, are your finances one of the last areas that you've surrendered to God? Are you holding on to it? I'll give you everything else, Jesus, but... I need this. Well, the reaction of the disciples in verse 26, their extreme alarm, tells us they understood what Jesus is saying. They rightly discern that if it's impossible for rich people to enter the kingdom, it's impossible for anyone. Then who can be saved, they say. By human effort, by human goodness, Human achievement, entering the kingdom of God, inheriting eternal life, following Jesus, are impossible. Jesus goes out of his way with this picture of the camel and the needle to make sure that you and I and the disciples understand that no one can earn salvation. But there's good news for us in verse 27. What's impossible for man is possible for God. Let's read verse 27 again. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. <clears throat> with this very straightforward and simple statement, Jesus explains why you should put your hope in God through faith in Christ, because he's in the business doing the impossible. Jesus says to us, what you can't do for yourself, I will do for you. Why? Because he can. And because he's good. We learned that back in verse 18. 
In Titus 3.5, Paul explained to Titus, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. But there's more to be gained than just forgiveness of sins and eternal life. As great as those are, there's more for us when we follow Christ. Look at verses 28 through 31. In them, Jesus revisits this cost-benefit analysis of discipleship to reassure his disciples that they will benefit by following him, not just in eternity, but right now, in this life. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or land for my sake and the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and land with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. <clears throat> Peter says we have left everything and followed you. What does he mean by saying that the disciples had left everything? We know they still have a boat because they go fishing later. Peter has a mother-in-law, which implies he has a wife. They still had stuff. They still had family. So in what sense had they left everything? And what does it mean for us then to say it must cost you everything to follow? Well, on behalf of the disciples, Peter is proclaiming here that they have, by God's grace, recognized that nothing in their lives, not wealth, possessions, accomplishments, status, or their relationships are more valuable to them than Jesus. We not, may not always be there, but that's where they are. They are ready and willing to give up anything to follow Jesus. They've all willingly placed themselves in a position of utter dependence on Jesus. This is a confession, really, of lordship, of his lordship in their lives. In contrast to the rich man who walks away, this 12 sets the pattern for us for discipleship, for all that would follow them. Following Jesus must cost you everything, but the, the benefit far outweighs the cost. Like the disciples, following Jesus must cost us everything. It's... it's 100% or nothing. Following Jesus is not something to be done on the side. It's not something you add to your life to make your life a little better. No, by every definition that Jesus gives us in Scripture, the way he defines discipleship, he defines it as following him replaces our old way of life and its values. We must be willing to leave everything in order to follow Jesus. In response to Peter's profession of faith, Jesus now gives them reassurance. He says, the kingdom of God they have entered has benefits now. Jesus tells them, no matter what you've had to give up or will give up, you'll receive a hundredfold now in this time. I am not a financial wizard. Any of you that know me know, well know that's very true. But a hundredfold seems like a pretty good return on investment to me. 
Well, what is, to what Jesus, is Jesus referring to? In what way is a follower of Christ compensated in this life with houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands? He's talking about his church. When we're in Christ, we're in the body of Christ, the church. Those of you who are members of this church, look around. Mothers, brothers, sisters, children, homes, resources. God has given this as a gift to you. No matter what you give up, we have this. We have the church. We're meant to love each other, bear one another's burdens, rejoice with one another, weep with one another, disciple one another. And we're connected to brothers and sisters around this valley and around the world in relationships that will last into eternity. The church is unlike any other relationship you might have in this life. Oh yeah, and in the age to come, eternal life, which is pretty good. But wait, there's something weird in the middle of this paragraph uh, we'll receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, with persecutions. Hmm. Doesn't it seem odd to see persecutions listed among the benefits of discipleship? Did Jesus lose his train of thought here? And didn't, Jesus didn't say, you'll receive these benefits in spite of persecutions or to make up for persecutions. no with persecutions. Very intentional way of saying it. As if they also are a benefit. Well, how can that be? How can persecution be a benefit? James 1, 2 through 4 tells us this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Persecution and sufferings as benefits, this is the upside-down reality of walking by faith in the kingdom of God, the paradox of Christianity. To go up, you must go down. To have glory, you must be humbled. To have, you must sacrifice. To receive life, you must die to self. Many who are first will be last. Well, immediately after this, Jesus would remind his disciples a third time that he must die so that they will have life. This paradoxical way of life is the pattern established by Jesus and then repeated by his disciples since. Well, there are, there are two things that are true of you and me that are true of every person that have ever lived, except for Jesus. And they are, one, you are totally incapable of entering the kingdom of God by your own effort, achievements, or merit. It's not true just of you, it's true of everybody. Second, you're natural, because you're born in a sinful state, your natural tendency to value your life, your accomplishments, your wealth, your stuff, makes it very hard, extremely hard to follow Jesus. In fact, so hard that you would never do it unless God gave you the gifts of repentance and faith to enable you to follow him. 
If you're a believer here this morning, uh, at some point, by His grace, you surrendered your life to following Jesus. But even as followers of Christ, we often drift back towards placing our hope and our confidence in things other than Jesus. It's part of the already and not yet of the Christian life. We are still susceptible to drifting the song. We are prone to wander. It's a constant hazard for Christians. It will be your whole life while you're here. Maybe you've recognized this morning the presence of an idol or multiple idols in your life, things that you find are more important to you right now than Jesus. Maybe it's wealth, maybe it's something else. Brother and sister, if you recognize this today, be encouraged. This is the Holy Spirit revealing to you this issue so that you might repent and reset your hope on Jesus alone. Isn't it good of him to show us what we need? Commit yourself this morning, right now, to following him fully again. Maybe you thought of yourself as a Christian, but you're realizing this morning that you've never really given up everything and surrendered completely to him. You've tried instead to graft Jesus onto your existing life as it was. And it isn't really working very well for you. God is saying to you this morning, follow me. Truly following Jesus must cost you everything. But the reward is far greater than the cost. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, he may be calling you this morning for the first time. I urge you to consider the cost, but also to understand the tremendous benefit of following him. Jesus really is better than anything. Anything you might have to give up to follow him. Nothing in this world can compare. You can begin to follow him today by faith. If you'd like to talk to someone about that or if you have questions about what that might look like for you, I'd be happy to talk and pray with you about that. Any of our elders would. Most of the people in this room would. So speak to someone today if you're, if you're considering that before you leave. Following Jesus must cost you everything, but the reward is far greater than the cost. There's a line in the Isaac Watts hymn, When I Survey the Wonders Cross, that expresses well the idea of the costs and benefits of discipleship. He wrote, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray.